Tabletop Text Podcast. I'm Dean Arneson, and I'm here with my co-host, Skylar Nickel. Hi, I'm Skylar Nickel, and we are your technicians. For today's podcast, we're going to talk about action economy. What is action economy? Okay, so action economy is an abstract concept, and we wanted to tackle that first and foremost. So action economy is about the efficiency of turning limited resources in a game into your end game resources like points. So if you have a good action economy, that's you're using a minimal amount of resources to make a large amount of points, or you're using a small amount of resources to make a lot more resources. Right. And no one wants to play a tabletop game where they work on getting a bunch of one resource, but at the end of the game, you end up with no points for it. You know, you, you can hold all but one territory in Asia, but if you don't capture that last territory, you're not converting, you know, your turns into useful resources. That's a risk reference for anyone that somehow doesn't know that. It's okay. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> so, uh, Dean, why is, that, why is having a positive action import economy important to you? Um, I mean, you have to have a positive one. Definitely. I mean, if you're going, if you're declining in resources throughout the game, there's no way that you're gonna oh, it feels do so anything. Bad. Typically, you want to have the best action economy, um, better than your opponents. Um, you know, everyone basically starts with the same resources, and the goal of the board games we're talking about in today's podcast, your aim is to take that starting turn, that's those starting resources, and turn them into more points than your opponent. So, uh, so like, what do you do to actually improve your action economy? Um, one of the biggest things is avoiding waste in action economy um, and reevaluating certain things that you can get in the game based on where you are in the game because some things will change in value as you go through the game. Okay. Are you talking about, like, value in terms of their resource cost or are you talking about value as in, like, their actual output i'm talking about how many points they give you okay the actual like (laughs) you know if a card gives you one point per turn for example uh if you buy it at the beginning of the game and there's nine turns you get nine points for it right yeah um you know your neighbor your opponent sees oh man he's getting all these points five five turns later he decides that he's also going to buy one but he bought it for twice what it's worth because he's only getting four points. Yeah, I mean, that that's definitely true. So uh, That's so just a simple example, yeah. Yeah, no, but it's also a very prevalent example. It happens a lot. There's a, there's a lot of games where you can get the slow, grindy value engine, which is where you're, you're generating value a little bit at a time, and eventually it's enough additive value to be better than everyone else. Yeah. Or you can go for, like, the all-in strategy... Where it's just like, well, if I do this, I'm going to get so many points in such a big chunk mm-hmm. that I overpower everyone else. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the other, the flip side of this is those types of cards, these engines that we are going to talk about, they are so powerful early in the game that if you're one of the players who doesn't get one, you can be left far behind if you don't have something that's producing value for you every turn. Okay, so that's something we'll probably cover in a later podcast, but Dean, why don't you go ahead, uh, what's the definition of an engine in a game? 
Because that's a term we're going to throw around a lot. Yeah. Like a lot, a lot. Yeah. And we should probably define it early. So <laughs> I guess the most abstract way I can think of an engine is something that you buy with resources now and it produces resources as the game goes on. Okay. Uh, I think that's a pretty solid definition. I would definitely also put in that uh, it can convert a certain resource into a different resource, whether that output is points or uh, more of more resources of a different type. Like uh, in Settlers of Catan, uh-huh. you can build ports, yeah. and those ports will allow you to exchange three of a certain resource or two of a very specific resource for one of something else. Right. So that's a that's a small engine you can build in that game. Yeah, that makes sense. I see what you're saying. And then, like, if you have all the wheat and no one wants to trade you for it, you can use your port to get the stone you want because I love stone. No one wants to trade with you because you're the power gamer. You know that, right? Hey, <laughs> what are you talking about? It's not like a... <laughs> what are you talking about? you got to be stealthy. you got to, like, pretend like you're really casual about it. Uh, <laughs> it's just some Machiavellian tactics for board games. We don't want to talk about that today. Um, so I think a big thing, too, is when you are developing your strategy early... Yeah. A lot of people tend to hedge their bets, especially in a game that they haven't played before, and they kind of do a little bit of everything, kind of the, like, mixed bag. Right. I think this is a very common problem with, like, new players to a game. Where oh, yeah. They're like, what can I even do on this turn? I guess I'll do this. And they try to develop into different directions and in games where action economy matters a lot it can be really easy to waste actions by just doing something instead of just conserving your resources yeah so this is like where you're you're walking around in a circle because all everywhere around you is really pretty but you could actually get to a destination and win the game if you walked in one direction yeah so one of the games that I play a lot is called Scythe, and mm-hmm. the goal of the game is to reach six achievements before everyone else. Typically, the player who does it anyway wins the game. So so this is what we're going to define as a race game. Okay. So uh, like a race, there's a point at which the game ends, and usually the person who ended the game wins the game. Right. And... There's a bunch of different achievements, like, you know, win in a combat, like, produce all of your mechs. And if you try to get, you know, all 10 achievements, if you're 90% of the way to getting all 10, but someone gets all six of theirs before you can even get one, like, you're way, way in, in last place. Been there, been there, been there, done. Yeah. <laughs> In race games, I think it's helpful to explain that focus, and that's kind of what we're talking about today. Yeah, so one of the... So race games, especially, and uh, time time games, I consider time games like there are seven rounds in this game. I don't know why it's always seven. Like, it's almost always exactly seven. Sometimes six, sometimes eight. Hey man, Eclipse is nine. 
That's true. Eclipse is nine. Still feels short. <laughs> so in a time game, there are a set number of rounds, and that does not change. And so that means that if you want a slow grindy strategy where you're going to gain incremental value, you can start that early, and it won't be disrupted by the game ending early unless everyone is really tired and hungry. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> unless there's some, like, rule-breaking, you know, external circumstance, you're going to know, like, when you can slow down, you know, your engine-buying phase and go into your point-producing phase. Mm -hmm. But in a race game, if someone is trying to end the game fast, then you need to get your value now. And so that will change how your action economy actually works. Right. You talk about it like it's a bad thing, like oh no, I love to, it. <laughs> worry, you have to like oh, you just want to build like this super perfect mathematical economy, but like there's these players out there that just like <laughs> ruin my strategy by cutting under me. But I think that you know you understand that. <laughs> no, I'm totally that player. I'm totally the player that under to undercut everyone. Yeah. So if you end up like with somehow like a weaker economy for your you know your race or your faction or whatever. Sometimes the best option is to try to end the game early if you know that they're going to outpace you in the long run. Yeah. So uh, one thing that I want to nail in with this is that if you are intentional when you are constructing your strategy instead of just like derping around the whole time, mm -hmm. you're gonna get you're gonna do better even if even if you don't win you're going to have explored something more effectively than if you just like wandered into the strategy. Right. This is kind of talking about like learning the game because you can play the game you're playing and just kind of take an action, not have an intentional direction. But if you don't explore specific cohesive strategies, it's going to be hard for you to understand when to use those strategies. So Dean, yeah. When do you go for the all-in strategy? So you want to go for the all-in strategy? Well, when you think that it has a better chance of winning you the game than just like hedging your bets. So when Skyler talks about an all-in strategy, typically these types of strategies have a significant element of risk involved. Yeah. Because of, you know, player interaction or... Roll of the dice, luck of the draw. These are boom-bust styles of strategies and often have a, uh, a geometric amount of point gain if you reach a certain threshold. Right. It's just exponential. It just goes way up. And I think, you know, there's a certain type of player that likes to do that. You know, that's just like, I'm always going to go for the strategy that if it succeeds, it's going to blow everyone out of the water. And there's also some times where it is just the most effective, most likely way to win. Your opponents have claimed all of the other resources and you can't, you know, compete with that. Then sometimes it is better to roll the dice than to just accept your fate and say, well, I guess I'll only be in fourth by three points. It's better than, <laughs> no, no, no one does that. <laughs> if you're going to lose anyway, you may as well go for the all-in strategy. That's what I think. Okay. Uh, obviously, uh, a recommendation from me, if you're playing Seven Wonders for the first time, and so is everyone else, always play Science. You'll win. Pick green. Pick yeah. green cards. <laughs> I, it, it's a thing. You'll win. Yeah, no, <laughs> especially if no one... Yeah, if you're just playing with 
some friends that haven't played before. So uh, let's talk about optimizing our strategies a little bit more as well. Yeah. So for optimization, this is we're getting down to brass tacks of, okay, I know this game gives me this many resources to start the game. Yeah. Like, what is it in Monopoly? Like 5,000 bucks or something? This is embarrassing now. I don't know this. Uh, I think it's 5,000. Because it's like a bunch of fives. Two, it's two fives it and like five. In? Maybe it's 2,500. Actually, that's probably right. Because yeah. it's like two fives and five ten, five hundreds and then other junk. Anyway. Anyway, there's a cert, there's a kickoff for the game. Like every team starts at uh, like tip off in basketball in the middle of the court. Yeah. And they have effectively a fair chance, unless one guy is like way taller, to to get the ball. Like everyone starts at the same place. And when you're optimizing, you are using every amount of resource throughout the course of the game to advance your strategy. Yeah. Uh, this is where like hedging comes in is a lot of times if you're hedging, unless you can get value out of your hedge, mm-hmm. it's, it's effectively like wasted resources that don't give you a net outcome. Yeah. I think it's important to know what victory looks like. Like, for the example of Monopoly, it's Victory pretty, looks like crushing my enemies. Like, Monopoly <laughs> is pretty obvious, right? Yeah, it's, it's just true. like, okay, everyone pays me money, they go bankrupt, I win. Um, in a lot of It's a action, slow, slow bleed. Oh, man. Depends on how you play. We'll talk about that in a different podcast. Yeah, definitely. We'll I talk have, about alternative styles of play. I have bastardized <laughs> how to play Monopoly. Like, it's a problem. Um... But in a lot of these really action economy heavy games, you're going to be aiming towards a point total. And sometimes you just got to like think about what your victory, how many points you're going to have so that you can determine, like engage whether your strategy is going to be effective. If you know a typical winning score, then you can kind of like piece together how many points you're expecting to get and see if you can compete with your strategy. Yeah, so, like, if if a winning score for this game is usually, like, 30 points, and the game has a set length of time of, like, seven rounds, mm-hmm. that means you have to be getting an average of, like, 4.5 points per round. Right. And so you have to figure out, like, oh, this is worth two points, and so this can't be my one thing this round. Right. Or it's, like, rounds four, five, six, and seven, I have to be getting, like, Eight points in those rounds. Right. If I'm not getting any points in the preview in the first rounds while I'm building my engine. Yeah, and tying your like strategy directly to points can be really helpful because in some games there are things that'll give you points, but they're intended as like a secondary point thing, whereas the main points come from something else. And I see people fall for this all the time, where they go for like the strategy that feels like it's built into the game, but it's meant as a secondary point source, and so they just like max out on this thing that only gives like a mediocre amount of points. Yeah. So a lot of games will give you points for leftover resources at the end of the game. Yeah. And that's just like, it's, it's, it's pity. It's pity points. It's more of a, (coughs) (coughs) right. It's more about tiebreaking than anything. Yeah. It's just like, well, you, you theoretically spent less coins than your opponents if you have more at the end of the game. 
Right. And, like, some some games don't give you points for it. They just do it for tiebreakers. Yeah, I know. Like, you've got to realize, like, which things here are the tiebreakers. Like, I, I, I promise you that one point for every three coins at the end of the game, you could have spent those three coins on something that would give you two points, and you would be better off. You would have two points instead of one. Yeah, no, it's like, it's an awkward situation when you have, like, a lot of money coming in because that's kind of, like, a resource that you're supposed to be turning into points. Yeah, if you, uh, you'll see this in a lot of, like, real-time strategy, like StarCraft players are always at or near zero in their, in their amount of cash flow. Vespian gas, man. We need more Vespian gas. (laughs) And they're at or near their cap population because they're only building enough population to host however many units they need. There's no, there's little or no waste. There's no, there's no like, oh, I've been having this worker gather this material when I don't need it. They could be like constructing a building that I need or something. So I have a question for you. Okay. I may have an answer for you. (laughs) When you're, you know, planning out, your strategy, you know, you're trying to commit to a strategy. How do you balance time? Like, how do you not write a master's thesis for your mathematics major? Like, excuse me, I'm a molecular, I, I graduated in molecular biology. Okay, okay. So like, <laughs> you know, theoretically, you could just like map out everything. You could just like account for every point, try every strategy. Like, where do you draw the line? Like, how, how long do you plan? So, obviously, there's a bit of a difference between if the game is, like, a known entity yeah, or if it's, like, a cold open where you just, like, hey, I've heard this game's really good, guys. Let's get it. And you open the box. You flip it out. You read the rules. You pass your friend the rule book because they're going to read the rules, too, while you're setting up the board. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get started and you kind of, like, bumble your way through. And obviously in areas like this, like, you're going to be hedging a lot more because you don't even know what's really good. Yeah. But, like, you, you'll find that a lot of times the person that's the most aggressive or the person that does the best all-in strategy that other people aren't interacting with uh-huh. wins in your first, in your first playthrough almost every time. Because, like, you don't, you don't have it nailed down, like, how do I win the game quickly, or how do I maximize my point value, or just like, right. I'm going to go big, right. and I made it. Or, I'm going to end the game fast, and everyone else has just been, like, dirtling the whole game because they don't know what's going on yet. Right. And then they're like, oh my gosh, progression is overpowered. And so, I guess, like, tying back to the question, uh, you're, the other players at your table... And especially if you are your known playgroup, will uh-huh. definitely affect your your strategy. So my wife and I have played this one game called Near and Far like ten times right. in a weekend. Oh yeah. And it got to the point where she is always going for these just huge haymaker amounts of points. Uh-huh. But they take a while. Near and Far is a race game, and so you can dictate how fast the game goes if someone is more aggressive in placing all of their, uh, all of their points. Right. And so I just went, okay, well, she's trying to go for these late game haymakers. I can't compete with that. Yeah. Like in terms of the late game. And so, undercut her. and so I undercut her and then she got mad at me because I beat her like four times in a row. And so I tried something else and then I lost miserably. So, <laughs> so you can win or you can lose 
But if you win, you also lose. Uh, that's a different dynamic. <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's something else there. Win at all costs, Tyler. No. No. <laughs> there, there are certain costs that just are not worth the win. Nice. But, uh, but that's a big deal, is that the way that your playgroup plays and what's currently happening in the game can dictate like what strategy is most effective yeah. and also the, the timing of the game itself. Yeah, and I think that even if you come into the game blind, like a cold open, you can still use the principles of action economy to have effective turns. Yes, definitely. Um, you can still eventually mess up in the long run. You can like misgauge how much time you have or overcommit to a certain strategy that doesn't give you enough points. But these general principles that we're talking about can be applied no matter how well you know the game. Yeah. Uh, when I do a cold open, my first thing I like to do in the first round is math. That if you if you know that this is a strategy, which you can kind of tell once you've played a lot of games and you yeah. open the box, uh, is, okay, how many points will this get me on average per round? Right. Is that acceptable? Yeah. I think... If you can kind of like look at how the points are scored at the beginning of the game, you can kind of put together like a map of what your end game point distribution is going to look like. Because there's different strategies in most of these games. And you can kind of like think about how you're going to get the points that are going to push you above what you think is an average score. Yeah, so that's what I call like scouting. Uh, so, you're, so you're looking ahead and you're seeing, oh... Uh, we can do harvesting as a, as a legitimate strategy because you can get points from harvesting. Yeah. Uh, and so I want to do, I want to do all in on harvesting. Right. And if, if the game is conducive to that, like that's a legitimate strategy. And so, but you have to know, okay, how can, how do I get points from harvesting? Is it through shipping my points off like in roll for the galaxy or race for the galaxy is it in like accumulating things? Mm-hmm. And so you have to figure out a way that you can actually get those points. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so one more thing I want to talk about, one more okay. principle. Um, I talked about earlier about avoiding waste in action economy games. And we kind of talk about it with hedging our bets, not going for strategies that are not your strategy, you know? Yeah, it's just like, oh, well, this person has already dominated the area. Right. Well, let's move in. <laughs> I think in a lot of games, there's a certain element of precision that's really important that you want to get exactly the amount of resources you need to pursue your strategy. Definitely. If you have like one extra wood or whatever that you aren't using, then you might have been able to get to the same place like more efficiently if you just aim for exactly what you're going for. You can kind of, even if you don't know the whole chain, all of your actions in a row, what you're going to do at least like one or two turns ahead. You want to be able to chain them as tightly together as possible, as efficiently as possible. Yeah. So it got to the point after 10 games of near and far in three days, yeah. uh, where I would end the game with zero resources. And I was so proud of myself. Yeah. Like that's ideal. <laughs> that's what you want. Yeah. Because every single resource that we generated was turned into points. Yeah, it reminds me of when I was playing a lot of Power Grid. We got so good at the game that, like, 
every turn we're down to like five or less dollars in games where you can spend over a hundred in a turn, you know? And it's yeah. just like, everyone was just down to the wire using everything to its maximum potential, trying to line up our actions just so that we, you know, everything lines up nicely. I think that's where a lot of like conversation about games and about strategy comes into yeah. is through that optimization method. Uh, usually like we were t- talking about kickoff uh, of a game because everyone starts with usually the same or if you have like different clans or races that have special abilities or special startings you can use that to your advantage and the conversation becomes okay my first three turns of play should be this this and this because i have control over that right and that generates the most that's the best use of the resources i have or the bonuses i have yeah i think you're right that people do like those optimization like details are what make games interesting and they're what make good players into great players, I think, too. Yeah, because it's not every game is as simple as, like, you know, everyone just has one resource. You can buy an engine that produces one resource every turn for five resources. So all you got to do is only buy those things before there's five turns left, right? Like, it gets to be a little more complicated, but as soon as you, like, get familiar and, like, really expert, I guess, with, like... The idea of action economy then like you can play a totally new game and have like a really good grasp of it without having played it yeah i think like uh the open is what develops your ability in the mid and late game like in chess there are only eight moves you can do on your first turn like you have to move a pawn forward but you can move it forward two or one so that's actually 16 moves you can do and then each of those opens a different pocket of moves based on what what piece is now available from your back row to move and so i can't believe you haven't the, the poor knight the knight opening man you have oh i guess that's four true more. you do have four more moves there's 20 opening moves there, there are 20 opening moves yeah. and each of those 20 opening moves dictates what your next potential moves are Right, like some opening moves in chess. We're assuming you're familiar, but like some of them are awful. Like if you move one of your side pawns up one, just like you did nothing. Like literally nothing. Actually, you restricted more moves. Yeah, like because you can't move your knight up in that region. That is true. <laughs> um, you, not a great knight move to begin it's with. It's not a great knight move. Well, anyway, anyway we like, <laughs> yeah, compare it to you know moving your king pawn up where you can move your queen and your bishop out like that's it's, it's a strong open because a, it gives you lots of options definitely stronger than the side pawn like <laughs> not even players who try to play chaotically will open with the side pawn so obviously a big takeaway that we want to give you is make sure that you're using your resources effectively plan out your turns ahead of time and plan like what what your victory looks like. Yeah. Does nope. your victory look like crushing your enemies? Because that's how you win, because it's risk and it's player elimination, which is the greatest mechanic of all time. Yay! <laughs> American game. American game. Yay. <laughs> or not... yeah, go ahead. Or is it oh, my victory is going to have the most I'm going to generate 
three points a turn, and I'm going to end the game with, like, 30 points, and my opponents will be trying to get, like, five, six, and seven point turns at the end of the game, and I'm going to disrupt them after my, you know, point generation is already in place. Yeah. By the way, disrupting people, that's the way to go. Yeah, you know, if people are frustrated, <laughs> it just feels better. Uh, <laughs> as long as they're good sports. If, if people if people hate you when you're done, that's that's a victory from my book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so we wanted to go over a few examples of games that we love and play, and uh, how their action economy is how how you can learn the action economy from them. So. Uh, we'll be doing reviews of a couple of these games next week. Uh, so here's a little, a little teaser for you. So Terra Mystica is one of my absolute favorites. Uh, we played it again, what, a week ago? Yeah. Actually, exactly a week ago. Right? One week ago, yes. Uh, and Darklings OP, Band Darklings. Uh, what are you talking about? The Nomads are clearly the OP. Uh, the, whatever. <laughs> Uh, I, I will go. I can go into statistics with Dean later. Darklings are OP, but if you can get them, play them. I promise they're good. So in Terra Mystica, there are uh, what fourteen? I think there's fourteen different uh, tribes or quests, yes. and each one has there's kind of a simpler side and a more complex side. Yeah, they all have their own benefits, and then uh, each of them has an individual. Ability tied to their race, and then usually an individual super ability that you unlock with uh, another building along the way. Yeah. And then almost everyone, I think every race except for swarmlings and engineers, which are like super, which are kind of weird races, start with six workers and 15 gold to start. And those right. are the two like base resources. Uh, and so your plays become pretty tight, especially in the first one to two turns. Right, because each building that you're using to expand like your economy is going to cost you gold and workers. And so you have to line them up so that you end up spending them at the same rate. You want to hit zero in workers and gold at like the same time. And you also want to be accruing them at about the same rate. Yeah, So or, or at the right rate. Yeah, at the right rate for your race. So... Your, your basic building is called a dwelling, and it produces workers every turn. Yeah. And then you'll upgrade that to a trading house, which produces coins every turn. And then that trading house can be upgraded, upgraded in two branches to a stronghold, which you only have one of and provides you, like, a really strong ability, or to temples, which have, like, individual special bonuses. Yeah, the thing that really threw me off about this is it changes what you gain as you upgrade your building. It doesn't just get better. It doesn't, like, oh, it produces a worker right now, and then you upgrade it, and it produces a worker and a coin. It's just coin and power. Like, yeah. You lose the worker production. And so that that's a tricky thing to juggle in that game. Yeah, you have to balance, like, oh, I need to build out, or I need to build up. But if you just build up, you run out of workers to do anything with. Yeah. If you just build out, like, you don't have any coins, and you're like, no, I'm yeah. poor. For sure. One more thing I want to talk about Terra Mystica before we go on. Uh -huh. um, I think it's really important to think about how you're going to get your points. Because there's a cult track where you can gain favor with cults. And if you're, like, the best in all these different cults, you get 
like eight points. Promise the cults sound way more creepy than they are. It's literally just like religion. They're just things. They're just like factions. Yeah, it's a. <laughs> it's the translated game, right? Yeah, uh, I think it's in French. Yeah, I think that they could have gone with like sect or faction instead. Whatever. Because cult <laughs> sounds like they're sacrificing children. Um, <laughs> it, you're not wrong. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if you focus too much on that, you don't get the same amount of points as like building buildings because that's the main source of points that you're going to get. Yeah, so in each round, at the beginning of the game, before everyone chooses, before everyone starts the game, you... There, you set out the round bonuses, and each round bonus is usually for building a specific type of building during that turn, during that round. And so you want to, when you look at your action economy, your that specific action during that turn is going to net you more value. And so yeah. you want to adjust your strategy for that turn, for that round bonus. Right. Yeah. So that's where a lot of it come, a lot of the depth of the strategy comes in is you have more or less going on in each round, which I think is really unique. Yeah, so Above and Below. Oh. Uh, this is the next game we're going to talk about. So Above and Below is a game by Ryan Lockett. Uh, he's a really nice guy, and his games are really good. Also, there his art is really good, so he does the game design and the illustration, which is like pretty uncommon for a lot of designers. And... Uh, highly recommended. Look him up. It's a beautiful game. It's a beautiful game. His art style is also, like, really nice. It's pleasant to look at. It's yeah. wonderful. So, beyond that, but, okay, after we get off our pro-Ryan Lockett agenda, <laughs> let's talk about the game itself and what makes it cool. So, I think, for me, the one thing that makes it the most unique is the risk-taking role-play element that you can do. Because... There's a lot of the familiar elements of action economy in the game. You can buy buildings that produce you resources that can lead into points at the end of the game. But you can also take an action that sends you to the caves. And so you can assign like two of your workers to go into the caves and they you're read like a role-playing scenario. And yeah, so it's like a random encounter. Basically, there's like a booklet. You just roll dice and it gives you like a random encounter. And you can like take the aggressive like evil route, or you can be like the benevolent route or the super difficult to pull off route. And so there's this element of risk where you roll dice to see if your workers can accomplish the task and you'll get rewarded according to like how high you can go. And so I think that adds like a little bit of like randomness chance to an otherwise pretty static mathematically game. Yeah. So above and below is a worker placement game. So you're going to get these workers that will regenerate over time and they will perform your actions for you. So if you have more workers, you get to do more actions, usually. And uh, the the caves, the RPG-ish elements, are yeah. really interesting because it requires two workers because this is the buddy system. We're going to be safe down there, guys. <laughs> and so you're spending effectively two actions to go into the cave. And so the thing is, each of the, uh, each of the difficulties of each mission will scale and you get additional benefits when you get more like pretty much cave score. Right. It's a mini boomer bust. Yeah. Cause like a lot of them, if they, uh, here's a, here's a trick for anyone looking to play the game. If 
it doesn't require a score of five or better. It's usually worth less less value than two actions worth. Right. But like, at five or better is like the break point where like sometimes you'll get two or even like five actions worth of value. Right. It, it, the thing is, it doesn't tell you the exact rewards for hitting each break point. It just tells you what the break points are. And so like the higher the break point, the better the rewards. Which, which is good. Right. Um, you want the higher rewards. If, you, if you're going to do a lot of caving, then you're aiming for those higher ones if it's going to be worth your time. Yeah. So uh, Above and Below is a really great game, and you can learn a lot from Action Economy in it. Yeah, no, I feel like it's pretty clear how everything impacts. And I think the strategies are clear, too. Like, if you're new... Like, like reading the game's setup probably took a third of the amount of time of the first time my wife and I played the game. Because you're like, wait, where does everything go? What's going on? What is everything called? And I think yeah, kind of every game's a little like that. Yeah. But, like, once you, once you have everything set up for the first time, you look at it and you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And then setup becomes, like, super fast, super quick. Right. And so, and then you can like look at the strategies and there's kind of like a specific building that you buy for each strategy. Yep. And so it makes it really clear as a new player of like, oh, this is what's viable. And I yeah. think that's a really, that's a really good thing to do for design is to make it clear to players how to win the game. So that they spend less time of less, less time worrying about uh, what am I doing and more time worrying about how do I do it well. Yeah, I might use Above and Below to break someone in for Terra Mystica. If they weren't so sure about these complex board games, Above and Below would be a good one to start with. Because it's not so simple that they're not going to pick up on these action economy concepts, but it's simple enough that you can kind of understand where things are going and make it work. Don't let them read the rule book, though. It'll make it sound way more complicated than it actually plays. <laughs> yeah. uh, so the last one we want to hit on real quick, uh, it's also a really popular, like a lot of people know this game, is Pandemic. Yes. So Pandemic is like many co-op games where each player has a certain number of actions and usually a unique ability. And so in each one, you are you're trying to maximize each turn in tandem with other people. Yeah. So like if your if your role or your specific character job does something more efficiently than someone else, you should be the one doing that. Correct. Yeah, like absolutely. 90% of the time. Well, just whenever you can. Yeah. Like, if you can at all, do it. I mean, if you can do it 100% of the game, that's great. You, you're doing it right. You can only not do it <laughs> if you can't, basically. Yeah. Pandemic is really cool. I like the feeling of tension it gives because of, you don't know when there's going to be an outbreak. And so the planning on how you're going to manage what's currently on the board kind of fluctuates with how soon you expect an outbreak to come. Yeah, I think that's a really good thing, too, is like, oh, this isn't a priority right now because you have to focus on this problem. And right. then, oh, crap, we have another problem. Right. And kind of like you can kind of gauge when an outbreak's going to happen, but since it's shuffled, it could come like the very next turn. And so you basically are just putting out fires the entire game. You, know, you just want to make sure that the thing that's at risk of multiplying the bacteria you want to take care of that at as least, soon as possible. At least it does state in the rule book that you can only have one epidemic per player turn. Once we uh, had 
we, we didn't know that rule one time. Oh, I didn't know that. And so my, my brother-in-law drew two epidemics. And so we had an outbreak and then shuffled and then outbroke on the previous one. And so we had like six outbreaks. We went from like three to dead in one turn. No and that's way. not how the game is supposed to function. There's a little and we bit all, of a nerf going on there, yeah. Yeah, we all, we all cried because we were actually doing like decent. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes the rule is in there for a very specific reason. <laughs> so obviously read the rule book. But I think Pandemic's a good one because it gives everyone a different action economy, like a different uh, like a different reward based on per action. Right. Yeah, they can get different points, so to speak, different value. Yeah. Out of different actions depending uh, on who you are. And that's an important thing to remember. It when you have asymmetric games where people have different like different uh, skills or abilities based on their race or clan or whatever. Yeah. You want to be maximizing the competitive advantage of your racer class. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to go too much into that concept because we'll probably spend a whole podcast. Really on interesting. Asymmetric like, it increases replay value, right? Because yeah, you have different, you know, play styles that come out. But I don't know how they balance those things. It's crazy. Like how much testing you have to do to keep that thing balanced. That's what blows my mind. But it's yeah. cool, though. I, I think it's cool. I'm working on a game right now that's asymmetric characters because, I mean, it's fun and people like it and it's fun to play, but it definitely takes a lot more math. Like as a designer, you do so much algebra. <laughs> right. Because even if like you design a game and certain actions end up being way better than others and it's kind of unbalanced in that way, if all the players have the same ability to take that action, then it's still fair, so to speak. But, like, if they're different characters and some can take better advantage of one thing, you have to watch out for balance. Yep. Anyway, that's totally off topic. <laughs> well, Dean, is there anything you want to hit on just for the last for the last minute or two while we're finishing up? Uh, I just want to, like, talk about ourselves for a second a little more. I mean, we've been playing board games since we were, I don't know, elementary school or younger. Um, I don't know. It's kind of like our weekend thing that we do instead of whatever else other people do. I'm not totally sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, um, we were really into like board games that take a long time to play. You'll notice that when we do reviews. Cause I mean, <laughs> we play games that are longer than Terra Mystica and Terra Mystica is like two hours, two to three. Yeah. Depending on the number of players. And so we're just starting this podcast because we've been playing these games for so long. We enjoy playing them. And we want to share kind of our insight to how we see these games because we feel like when we play with other players, they like are, you know, I, would, I don't want to say casual because casual is fine, but they don't really take the game seriously. They're just playing the game to play the game. I mean... There's something okay with that, but on the other side, I want to play these games intentionally. And both of us really like to win. And winning is obviously important. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you play it for fun, but you also, the fun is winning. The fun is winning. That's right. I mean, doesn't isn't everyone agree with us? <laughs> obviously, because of our play-to-win mentality, that's why we care so much about optimizing and about how well the game is designed and about fairness and balance in the game. 
And so that's what drives us to analyze and study all of these games. And we bring that study analysis to you. Yep. Uh, you know, there's so much I can say about this topic, but I think we better sign off for now. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for listening. We really enjoy your time. Uh, if you like our podcast, please rate it on iTunes, sub to it on Google Play or wherever good podcasts are found. And uh, if you would like, check us out on Patreon. We'd be happy to join you on uh, Discord and chat more. Yeah, catch us next week. We'll be reviewing Above and Below and Terra Mystica, diving even more into depth to those two wonderful games. And yeah, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Thank you.